I have an uncle who I love dearly. I was born on his 12th birthday, and because of that, I've always felt a particular connection to him. I remember when I was little, being at my grandparents' house, and he put a pup tent up in the backyard and told me it was his birthday gift from my mother the year I was born. Every year on social media, we exchange birthday messages, and his are always particularly thoughtful. And last year, I unfollowed him on Facebook because I just couldn't read another post about the election or about how terrible liberals are. I have another friend. We went to high school together, although he was a few years behind me. But we were involved in a youth group together. I remember we shared a love of theater, and he had a beautiful voice. A few years ago, he and his family moved to Florida, and it was great to have Facebook to keep in touch and see what was going on in their lives. I unfollowed him, too. I was just tired of reading his posts explaining to me what liberals are, and what they believe. I unfollowed a lot of people on Facebook last year. You might have guessed I identify as liberal. You might have assumed that, because I'm up here speaking at a UU gathering, and most of us do skew pretty far to the left. Well, I was at a gathering of UUs last year, And some of us started talking about our disbelief that anyone could vote for a particular candidate in the upcoming election. It turns out we weren't all as politically aligned as I thought, even though we were all UUs. That conversation was deeply hurtful to one person in the room in particular. So what does this have to do with our current message series? If you recall, this series called Behind the Magic is about disillusionment with childhood stories, fairy tales, if you will, and the deeper re-enchantment that can emerge as we understand them from a new perspective. Today's message focuses on Jack and the Beanstalk. You all know the story of Jack and the Beanstalk, right? Okay, just in case, let me tell you. Jack and his widowed mother are living in poverty. They have one cow, and they live off the milk that that one cow produces. And then one day, the cow stops producing milk. So Jack's mother sends him to town to sell the cow. They're going to use the money to buy food to live. And foolish Jack, on his way to town, trades the cow to someone who gives him a handful of beans, says that they're magic. So you can imagine his mother is pretty angry and distraught. Now all they have to live on is a handful of beans, which in her anger she throws out the window and sends Jack to bed without supper. The next morning, they've grown into a beanstalk that rises clear up to the sky. 
So Jack climbs the beanstalk, and he sees a castle. Turns out there's a giant that lives in this castle. And when the giant comes home, Jack hides. I think he hides in the oven. When the giant falls asleep, Jack makes his getaway. But not before stealing the giant's gold, which he and his mother can live on. Until it runs out and he goes back up the beanstalk, back to the castle. Eventually the giant runs after Jack. Jack chops down the beanstalk and the giant dies. And Jack lives happily ever after. This story has been retold so many times and there are so many different versions of it that I thought, well, let me do some research, and I'll go back and find the original story. Only I couldn't, because the original story was told over 5,000 years ago. And people didn't start writing the story down until a couple hundred years ago. It strikes me that Jack is a pretty uninspiring hero. He's foolish, right, in the way he trades the cow for beans. He doesn't do that because he's insightful or wise. And his adversary is up in the clouds minding his own business. There was no tension at the beginning of the story. So why do we keep telling it 5,000 years later? The truth is, Jack is so relatable. He's the poor child of a widow who takes a chance on building a better life. If Jack had sold that cow, that pathetic cow that didn't produce milk anymore, that money would have run out very quickly, and he and his mother probably would have starved. Jack took a chance, and against all the odds, it paid off. We love stories like this. The other truth is that we don't really relate to the giant. He's not a sympathetic character. He's kind of mean. He makes bread of the bones of human boys, right? Fee-fi-fo-fum, that whole thing. The giant is not human and not worthy of our compassion. So when Reverend Ken reached out to those of us who have been worship leaders for a while, for a volunteer to preach in this message series, I thought about disillusionment with fairy tales and immediately thought, well, immediately I thought about princesses. You know, a young girl rescued by a handsome prince. They get married and live happily ever after. We're all familiar with disillusionment with those stories, right? It just felt like it had been done to death, and it wasn't interesting to me. But then I thought about Jack and the Beanstalk. And instead of a story of a down-on-his-luck hero who defies the odds, I thought about it in the context of a dehumanized adversary. Throughout time, for at least 5,000 years, right, we justify stealing or killing by focusing on differentness. 
That's what my Facebook friends were doing when they posted somewhat mean-spirited attacks on liberals. And that's what we were doing at that gathering when we dehumanize people who disagree with us by lumping them all together as liberals or Trump voters, it becomes easier to frame our disagreements as right versus wrong, good versus evil. The giant, just by being a giant, is a tangible representation of evil in a story. And killing an evil giant is a good thing. Next slide. This is Dr. Brene Brown. If you've been around for a while, you know that we love Dr. Brene Brown at Wellsprings. We even had a whole message series a few years ago based on her brilliant book, Daring Greatly. I was fortunate to see her at a women's conference earlier this year. She has a new book called Braving the Wilderness, and it's at least equally brilliant. Dehumanization is a major theme in this book. Dr. Brown writes about how we can't imagine ourselves ever excluding people from moral treatment. But that, really, we are all vulnerable to the slow and insidious practice of dehumanizing. And that, therefore, we're all responsible for recognizing it and stopping it. We see evidence of dehumanization throughout history. The Nazis called the Jews rats. Hutus involved in the Rwanda genocide called Tutsis, cockroaches. Native Americans are savages. Serbs called Bosnians aliens. It's not just historical, though. Think about how some of our arguments today are framed. College students who had a hard time accepting the election results last year were called snowflakes. And how many of us have laughed at the characterization of our president as an orange Cheeto? doesn't get less human than that. I read a comment from a friend of a friend on Facebook. He posted that Democrats hate black people, put up Planned Parenthood sites in poor communities to get rid of blacks, and have been and always will be evil. Democrats, a third of our electorate, This is outrageous and offensive to me. And I also read an article that characterized anyone who identifies as pro-life as wanting to control women. The article claimed that it has nothing to do with unborn babies and that they just want to control women's bodies. I grew up Catholic. And I've seen both sides of this issue. I strongly support a woman's right to choose. And I deeply understand the passion with which people I love, people like my uncle, believe in the pro-life cause. It's all about the unborn babies for them. 
When I paint everyone who disagrees with me with a broad brush, it's just another way to dehumanize, to turn every issue into good versus evil. Now, let me take a moment to say that we do have real differences and those differences matter. I am not advocating that we just agree to disagree and move on. Neither does Dr. Brown. She writes that when we avoid certain conversations for the sake of protecting a relationship, we end up making assumptions that can perpetuate and deepen misunderstandings and generate resentment. What if instead we had a meaningful conversation, increased mutual understanding, and perhaps still completely disagree? Next slide. There we go. This is comedian Sarah Silverman. If you know who she is, you might be worried that Loy forgot to give an R-rated language warning, which we sometimes do here at Wellsprings. Fear not. Yes, Sarah Silverman is known for being profane and controversial. But that's not why I bring her up this morning. Sarah has a new show on Hulu called I Love You, America. Has anyone seen it? In it, she endeavors to dig in and find out what connects us. To be sure, it's in Sarah's sometimes outrageous style. So if this, me- if this message makes you want to check out her show, hear me say, if Hulu used motion picture ratings, it would be R. I do think she's onto something, though. In the first episode, she travels to Louisiana to meet with a family of what she calls Christian gun-owning Trump voters. She asks them in a very non-confrontational way why they voted the way they did. And she listens. And they listen to her when she speaks from her perspective. They take the time to get to know one another And they really do come away with a deeper appreciation of each other's points of view. They discover what connects them, including a gift she brought for their seven-year-old son, a remote control fart machine. This is Sarah Silverman. On the show, she also does interviews with people who've experienced change. I find these even more powerful. This is Megan Phelps Roper. Megan grew up in the Westboro Baptist Church. You guys know Westboro Baptist Church, right? They're the ones who conduct the anti-gay protests at military funerals. Well, Megan was in charge of their Twitter account. And she says at first, her encounters on Twitter were hostile and provocative. And, over time, there were individuals on her feed who took the time to get to know her, to listen, understand her point of view, and then patiently and effectively challenge her. They didn't see her as a monster. 
and she changed. She left the church that her grandfather founded. And now, five years later, she works to repair the damage of the past. And she married one of the people who engaged with her on Twitter. As Sarah Silverman puts it, she married her troll. (laughs) In another episode, Sarah interviews Christian Picciolini, a former neo-Nazi skinhead leader who devotes his life to helping people leave extremist groups. Christian said when he asks people why they joined the hate group in the first place, invariably they say they just wanted to belong. He says they are not monsters, but broken human beings who do monstrous things. One way he helps to affect change is to introduce these people who are members of hate groups to the people they think they hate goes a long way to humanizing them. My favorite quote from this show comes from Christian. Find somebody that's undeserving of your compassion and give it to them. Because I guarantee you that they're the ones who need it the most. When we connect with people, when we really connect... We can change minds and hearts. Maybe even our own. I went back to my uncle's Facebook feed this week. And I'll be honest, I was looking for a gotcha quote. Something that I could show you guys to justify why I unfollowed him. And I do not regret unfollowing people on Facebook. It was a really necessary thing for me to do last year. You know what I found? I did find several right-leaning political links, and most were pretty provocative. You know what else I found? A video of his daughter playing the flute, pictures of his grandchildren, information about volunteer work he does with special needs children, I spent a long time scrolling through his feed and found myself appreciating him again. Imagine how much more connected I'll feel when I can sit down and have a conversation with him. I am not likely to change my uncle's views. And he's not likely to change mine. But that doesn't mean I can't push push past all of the provocative posts and try to understand him and what motivates him. This week, when I thought about my uncle, I thought about what a good guy he is and not so much about how irritating his opinions are. As universalists, our first principle states that we believe in the inherent worth and dignity of every person. What does that mean? I think it means we celebrate the vitality of the human spirit, that we are all born lovable, and each of us retains that right to be loved and valued. 
This principle means we speak out about monstrous, dehumanizing behavior in our midst. And I think we're called to go deeper still to that tension that comes when we recognize that not all dehumanizing behavior is monstrous. And it's not always out there. Sometimes it's in here. We need to fight this tendency to dismiss people, to, to agree to disagree with an eye roll, and to take the time to truly and compassionately connect. I think that's the way we change the world. Amen. And may you live in blessing. Would you pray with me? Spirit that dwells within us and among us, may we remember that the vitality that connects us flows through all of us and each of us. May that knowledge help us to focus on compassion and understanding and all that unites us as fully human human beings. Amen.